The groundbreaking humor magazine National Lampoon was published from its New York City headquarters from 1970 through 1988, a time which encompassed some of the city's most beloved and troubled eras. In this episode of 92Y Talks, writers and artists from the Lampoon discuss what it was like working for the famed publication. The conversation, which features Tony Hendra, Sam Gross, Peter Kleinman, and Douglas Tarola, was moderated by Jim Dwyer and recorded in front of a live audience on September 10, 2015 at New York's 92nd Street Y. Hi. Drunk, Stone, Brained, and Dead. Movie about a magazine that doesn't exist anymore, but still moves around us all over the place. Tonight we're going to have a conversation with four of the people who either took part in the movie or made it. And I'm going to bring them out on stage now, beginning with Tony Hendra. He may not be a household name to you here, but those of you who saw This is Spinal Tap will remember him as the long-suffering band manager. He also appeared on the front page of Not the New York Times, a very important single issue of the, of, not of the New York Times, in, in 1978 during the newspaper strike when uh, the, the fake newspaper declared that yet another pope had died. This was after Pope John Paul I and then Pope John Paul II. And the pope dies yet again. And, appearing on the front page as the, the Pope was, was Tony Hendra. So, your, your Excellency, we're very, your Holiness, we're very happy to have you here tonight. Thank you. Peter Kleinman is a creative director and writer who has been in the advertising world for many years, but was <laughs> art director at the National Lampoon and also at Heavy Metal Magazine. Among his most famous covers are a, um, uh, one of Stevie Wonder wearing 3D glasses and uh, a, an infamous baby in a blender poster. You're welcome. Yes. Okay. Sam Gross is a Bronx-born cartoonist who is one of the masters of the craft. His mother's side of the family was very artistic, and his father was a CPA, and that's apparently why he was, he's so well organized to this day. And finally, I'd like to bring out the director of the film, Douglas Tarola, who has been a producer of films such as Actress and Making the Boys Berlin. And uh, his James Beard-nominated film, Hey Bartender, premiered at South by Southwest. And now, as uh, you heard earlier, Drunk, Stone, Brilliant, and Dead, uh, which premiered at Sundance, will be at the IFC Center on the 25th of September. And I'm going to start the conversation saying, yes, we all know the Lampoon was a vital cultural force in the 70s and into the 80s. It was like a cannonball. It was, a, it was punk comedy before punk rock. And uh, I just wonder what you would do today when the leading Republican candidate, <laughs> who is the darling 
of the most conservative elements uh, in the Republican Party. Uh, his uh, second marriage ended after he started r- romancing his wife at a church service, his, his next wife at a church service, or that he held a press conference uh, saying that he had inspected the topless photos of a Miss Universe and found nothing distasteful and thought they were quite lovely. And uh, he, he thought that Holy Communion was, uh, you know, just a little bit of wine and have my little cracker, and I think those are the times that I ask for forgiveness. Now, could you do credibly or plausibly with the lampoon any better than what is going on now? Tony? <laughs> Well, I'm not sure about that. Um, I think Rick could probably have answered that question. He's doing, a, he's doing um, uh, a, a caricature of Trump at the moment as a blowfish, <laughs> which is not only the way he looks. And the, you know, the top, top of his head is the actual fish, and the rest is the blow. Um, <laughs> and as you know, blowfish are also poisonous. So that, that's, that has that to it. Too. So anyway. Um, um, we're here tonight to, uh, are we not, to discuss the National Lampoon vis-a-vis New York, correct? Indeed we are. That's what the uh, brochure said. Okay. So, so we better do it. <laughs> you don't want to get political. Right? No, no. I just want to make sure I'm not at the right event. Um, before, that, before I do that, by the way, I'd like to just point out that just for tonight, we're changing the name of the 92nd Street Y. It's going to be called the 92nd Street O. <laughs> the Old Men's Hebrew Association. <laughs> um, so welcome. Um, uh, now, apropos, seriously, apropos of the, of the, of the, of the, of the subject at hand here, um, it's actually kind of interesting that the National Lampoon, which was very much a New York institution and very much a New York magazine, New York in attitude, New York in extremism, New York in its humor, actually never did very much about New York itself. Um, and that's, you know, that, that's kind of an interesting irony or something. Um, but, um, but I just want to kick off the, the discussion by, by, by introducing you to someone who's very important to the National Lampoon, who can't be with us tonight, uh, and that's Matty Simmons. Matty Simmons was the publisher and CEO of the magazine, and he was probably the most New York thing we had to deal with on a daily, quotidian basis. Matty was, um, was a, a very a, a definite type. He was, uh, he, was, he was loud. He was somewhat insensitive. Um, he was a 50s, 60s, cigar-chewing New York business guy. I'm sure there's a wonderful Yiddish word for, for Matty, but I don't have to know it. Um, and uh, he, in a way, he was, sort of, um, he was sort of one of the madmen, but kind of a bargain basement guy. And, um, and uh, you know, so, so that, was, that, that was somebody that we dealt with all the time. Um, and uh, there was one particular story about Matty, which, uh, which I think will both demonstrate what we were dealing with on, on, a, on a quotidian basis. Um, and uh, this was about uh, uh, around the time that we were doing something called Lemmings. And Lemmings was uh, an off-Broadway show which was um, a full-scale parody of Woodstock, um, which, uh, which had happened about three years before that. This was done in 72, 73. Um, and um, I produced this uh, after a fashion and sort of directed it and co-wrote it with a bunch of other people from the magazine. Um, and I cast in it 
for the first major roles in their, in their careers, uh, John Belushi, Chevy Chase, and Christopher Guest. And um, the, 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 the basis of it was, it was, a, was, was, was it was basically a lot of musical parodies um, which uh, of, of, the, of the great, uh, the, the sacred cows of the time, if you will, uh, people like Bob Dylan and James Taylor, uh, both of whom Chris, Christopher Guest did brilliantly. Um, and, um, and Chevy did John Denver and, and John Belushi did memorably Joe Cocker, which he later re-whatever um, re, uh, re, uh, re you do. Resurrected. You do, resurrected, Reprised. yeah. I didn't mean that, but you know. Um, he later did on Saturday Night Live with Joe Cocker present. Um, anyway, the, these, these guys were incredibly talented and, um, and they made the show into a hit. It became an off-Broadway hit. And, um, and sure enough, uh, at some point in the, in, in, after the first month or so, Actually, as, as just as a side thought, just come to me. Lemmings, which, which actually opened in 1973, January 1973, was probably the first time that the magazine had actually sort of interacted with the city as a whole. Um, it was done it, at uh, the Village Gate, and it was on Bleecker Street, so you had all that sort of 60s vibe going on there. And, um, and, and it was very well reviewed by The New Yorker, and not so well reviewed by Walter Kerr of the New York Times, who found the, um, the obscenities somewhat tedious, which really annoyed me because, uh, well, it just annoyed me. So the, the, next, uh, the next day I sent him uh, a, a fish wrapped in a newspaper <laughs> saying, swim with the fishes. And um, I never heard from Walter after that. But, but, later in the, but later in the run, the, the, the New York Times, in its infinite wisdom, also did a rave review called Why Young People Like Lemmings. Anyway, it became a big, a big hit and quite a moneymaker for the National Lampoon. So about a couple of months into the run, uh, Chevy and, um, and, uh, and John and Christopher went to Matty Simmons and asked for a modest raise. And... Um, this wasn't surprising, really, because they, weren't, they were earning peanuts for this off-Broadway hit. Um, and I don't think it was even, even off-Broadway scale. It was Matty Simmons scale. <laughs> and um, and Matty took one look at these guys, uh, and then he said to three of probably the most interesting, or the more interesting, comedy talents of the late 20th century, he said, what do you need a raise for? You guys are a dime a dozen. <laughs> yeah, that was Matty. So anyway, we, uh, we had to deal with Matty, as I say, on, on, a, on a daily basis, but, um, but I don't want to dwell on that. Um, I, f I came to the magazine uh, in, in 1971 uh, at, uh, at a kind of crisis point in its history, which I don't need to go into. And um, I had been, uh, for about six years before that, half of a comedy team, um, appearing on most of the terrible 60s television shows like Ed Sullivan and The Hollywood Palace and, oh God, they were awful. Uh, Dean Martin, The Dean Martin Show, when, uh, and the, you have to watch for the, uh, on Perry Coma Show, you have to watch for Perry going to sleep when you're doing your routine. But it was, so I was, coming to the Lampoon was like I'd been firing on one cylinder for a long time and I was suddenly firing on all six cylinders. Uh, and it was an extraordinary group. Um, 
really we were all kind of misfits that somehow fit together. And um, one of the interesting things, and perhaps most New York thing about us, was that almost none of us came from New York. Um, I came from Britain, obviously, and like many of funniest Americans around, three of them came from Canada. Three of us came from Canada. Uh, and, um, and then other people came from other parts of the country. We had French and German and English cartoonists, uh, and we eventually even had a South African editor. So we were a little melting pot, all of our own, which was, which was kind of cool. But the most prominent person in this, in this group was uh, Michael O'Donoghue. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of him, but he was, uh, he was the head writer of Saturday Night Live at one point and um, did a notorious piece called Mr. Mike quite a few times in which he played a very evil advisor to young children. So, um, but anyway, Mike, Michael was, was really, really a brilliant, very funny guy. And, and he was not only brilliant, but he was sort of hard and jewel-like and, uh, and, and combative. And uh, he sort of set the tone, which was a very New York tone, even though he came from Rochester. It was very New York tone to, to the whole sort of discourse of the magazine and therefore its editorial. Um, and he had, a kind of, um, he had a kind of way of sparring with, with you and, and and conversationally sparring it was kind of, you had to sort of pass the Michael sparring test. Um, uh, he actually referred to it as dishing it out and being able to take it. So you would thrust and parry and he'd dish it out and you'd take it and then hopefully you'd dish it out. And, uh, and that, that was kind of, that was kind of the, the, the sort of dialogue that went on with Michael. But it was also, it became kind of the dialogue between us and it was actually very productive. Um, and by the way, Michael's, Michael's biggest, biggest put down was uh, he can take it, but he can't dish it out, uh, which, uh, which was uh, you, you were condemned, if that was the point. Right. Um, but, um, but anyway, the, the reason I wanted to talk about Michael is, uh, is that he was, a, he was kind of a mentor to me. We kind of hit it off. And uh, since I lived miles away in New Jersey, he, get, he offered me a couch in this smelly old um, loft he lived in on Spring Street in Soho, which was when Soho was a, a wasteland, obviously. And um, I found that, that this sparring game that he did, he, that we did all the time, was actually teaching me very quickly how to talk and think and be funny in American. Uh, and it was harder, it was sharper, and it was much quicker to the punchline unlike the more oblique forms of humor that I've grown used to at, at, in, in growing up in England. And, um, and Michael was always accusing me of circumlocuting. He, he would smoke silver thins while, while he was working. He said, you're circumlocuting, Henry. And circumlocution, I believe, is removing the foreskin from an otherwise healthy joke. <laughs> and that, that was a perfect Michaelism. So anyway, Michael and I did, did a few things together, and um, although he generally wrote alone. But the, but the most important thing, and the most fun thing we did together was the National Lampoon's first album, um, which, which came out in 1972, and um, was called Radio Dinner, as opposed to TV Dinner. Yeah, okay, I'm sure you get it. Um, but uh, the, uh, and, and Radio Dinner was, was based largely on, uh, on the... Uh, you know, st stuff from the magazine. But the most important thing about it was that for the first time, as far as we knew, and we were fairly clued in, we did some, we did uh, three rock and folk parodies 
of then extremely sacred cows uh, of Bob Dylan and um, Joan Baez and uh, John Lennon. And um, these were, uh, these, anyway, we, we, we recorded these um, and uh, I, I, I actually ended up doing John Lennon because we couldn't find anyone who would be, who was willing to do John Lennon. Now I should, I should explain about this song since it triggers the rest of the story that all, every word in the song, which we hope you're about to hear, um, is, uh, was actually written by John Lennon. What happened in 1971 was that Lennon had given a, uh, a, in, an interview to Rolling Stone. And he was going at the time, I believe with Yoko also, through primal scream therapy. <laughs> and primal scream therapy, which you've obviously not heard of, otherwise you'd probably be laughing, um, primal scream therapy got you back into touch with your primal urges and needs by screaming. That's really what it was. It was like you screamed. You screamed everything you wanted to scream out ever in your life. And that got you back in touch with your primal needs. So he did this entire interview, primal screaming, and ranting about the Beatles, about the Stones, about Linda Eastwood, Eastman, and uh, you know, practically everything, Apple Records, everything, his auntie, he, he ranted about everything. And, um, and Michael put, put the choicest parts of, this, uh, of these rants uh, together, he picked them out, and uh, uh, a guy called Chris Surf, who was one of the sort of original members of the magazine, wrote a very a brilliant kind of imagine type accompaniment to it. And, um, and then I worked with Chris to, uh, to, uh, to sing this. Um, and uh, we're going to try to play it for you. Can you actually play it? I don't know. Okay, well, Mr. Engineer, we're about to try and play this song. So this is the John this is what the John Lennon parody sounded like. Technology. I resent the moment for your focus. Tell me what do you know? A lot of faggot middle class kids wearing long hair and trendy clothes. Look, I'm not your fucking parents and I'm sick of upside him. He's coming knocking at the door with a fucking beat symbol. Get this fuck fast. I don't know your fuckers anything and all I got. <laughs> okay, well, that's, that's the John Lennon parody, anyway. And um, well, anyways. Thank you very much, everybody. It's been great. Oh, there's more? Okay, sorry. So um, I was going to do that a cappella, but I'm kind of glad I didn't. Um, but anyway, so the, um, the, uh, the, the album Julie came out, and it was quite successful. And, and to our delight, it, it really offended a lot of people in the underground and, um, and, in, the, and in the rock world. And um, about... Uh, about a month after it came out, it was, it was also nominated for a Grammy. Grammy. <clears throat> and about a month after it came out, <clears throat> um, uh, I was sitting in my office in the Lampoon one morning when O'Donoghue appeared at my door with a cardboard box, which uh, he had opened and was covered with stamps. And he said, um, this is addressed to me, but I think it's for both of us. And he threw the box across the office onto my desk. And I looked inside, 
and inside were nine sticks of crystalline dynamite. <laughs> and I knew enough about dynamite because I grew up around farmers and farmers used dynamite to dynamite tree stumps to know that you know, dynamite is actually itself not very dangerous. So it, it shouldn't probably be sending it through the mails. But, um, but uh, if it's crystalline, it's degraded, and it will blow up if you breathe on it. And the fact that Michael had thrown this box across the desk, across onto my desk, and, uh, and had not blown up the best humor magazine in America uh, <laughs> um, was an absolute miracle. So I got up and said, I am leaving this building now, and you should do the same. And I left and went across to the nearest bar. It was 10.30 in the morning and had a double scotch and stopped trembling. <laughs> and um, in due course, some, you know, the bomb squad came with their, with their funny great big ball of, on wheels that they put bombs into. And the bright, very brave policemen who do this and, and actually have similar shaped protective gear. And they took the dynamite away and put it in their bomb machine and took it away to wherever you take bombs away to. And, um, and I went up into, um, back into, the, back into the, the lampoon, and, and there in the lobby, surrounded by um, some, several cops who, who seemed to be kind of in awe of what was going on, um, there in the middle was Michael. And he was sort of crouched in this, he got into a kind of feral crouch when he was really, really mad. And he was screaming at them, Give me back my dynamite, you pigs! <laughs> it's mine! It's mine! And anyway, that this, was, this was one of the best days of my life, and certainly those were the happiest days of my life. That's all I have to say for now. Well, um, in, in art directing this magazine, right, you had some... Um, a lot of models and people coming forward. Apparently. You're going to go right to the photo funnies, right to the <laughs> right to the nudity, right? Yeah. I, yes, why not? No, yeah, no I mean, beating around I think it's very surprising. You know, there were no apps back then, and yet you had sex. And how did that happen? <laughs> I I never said I did have sex. I didn't say you did either, but I mean, you had it in the magazine. <laughs> not only were there no apps, there was no email. There was no. There was nothing. Right. And we put out a hundred pages a month, and uh, I, I still don't know how we did it. It's a miracle, really. Yeah. yeah. And how did you uh, get pictures for it? How did we get pictures? Yeah. Stock pictures? Uh, most, uh, we, we used the photographers. First of all, I was working at Esquire magazine. Right. And it was a real culture shock to uh, get a call uh, from a friend of mine, Rosie, who was a little person, a midget. Can you say midget? Uh, no, I don't think so. Small yeah. people. She was a dwarf. <laughs> And she said, oh, they need an art director at the Lampoon. I was 21 years old. I think I was 20, and I lied, said I was 21. And I said, I can't do that. I was doing paste-ups and mechanicals at Esquire. And uh, she said, oh, no, 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 you're perfect, you're perfect. So uh, the idea of shooting the photo from these models was kind of what got me to walk from 53rd up to 59th to meet with these guys. And first I met Michael Gross. And he, he looked at my portfolio, and then he brought me back and opened the door, and all the editors were sitting there. And uh, can I you talk a little bit about what these uh, photo funnies were like? What? Uh, sadly, we're, we're talking. Has about anyone vision. read the National Lampoon? Has any? I, I can't. Oh, I, I just see dark out there. Some have. Yeah. 
So some were born in 1980. Okay. I mean, photo funnies were uh, little black and white based on fumetti's, right? And usually the editors or myself were in them, and generally there were uh, women in them with fairly large uh, breasts, and uh, we used it kind of a, as an excuse to take any sexual jokes or double entendres and, oh yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll put that in a photo funny. So we shot them all with Polaroid, we, we <laughs> used uh, an office uh, in the back, and that was one of the functions of the art director of the magazine was to, was to shoot the photo funnies. But we also did parodies of, of Life and of National Geographic and Esquire and mm -hmm. Playboy. And for that, we used some of the top photographers in the city. Mm -hmm. uh, so in a sense, what Tony was talking about with you know, not being a New York magazine, but we were loaded with local New York talent, right? I mean, every, every studio on Fifth Avenue, every photo studio, uh, you know, was, we used them. Uh, I didn't know what I was doing when I was hired, and I think, looking back, Matty Simmons was, you know, he made a lot of mistakes, right? But it was a stroke of genius to hire someone who had no style and no ability uh, to put their own stamp on it because I didn't know anything yet. Right. But I still had the wireframe of you know some talent. So doing parody was it was great to get someone in there who wasn't a super famous art director. You know, and I think you guys were about to hire the guy who was doing Rolling Stone. Yes, that would have been a disaster. Yeah. And that, it would have been a fight every day. You know, yeah. Because he would have wanted it to look his style, but the greatness of the lampoon was that these guys were parodying, you know, Everyone. existing material. So, uh, so that was a one good thing. Of course, Matty, he hired me at 20 grand a year. And then when I started, Matty called me into the room and said, we're going to start you off at 16 grand a year because uh, <laughs> you need to learn a little. So I kind of got a, a pay cut on day one. Uh, <laughs> He also, I, I remember years later, I brought in this really well, I thought it was well drawn. It was a strip by Matt Groening and I really wanted to buy it and no one knew who he was. Uh -huh. Matt Groening, the guy that oh, does sure. The Simpsons, right? Yeah. Oh, and yeah, I show Matt it to Groening. Maddie and he goes, this guy can't draw, this is crap, Kleiman. <laughs> and I go, no, he's really good. This is like, I don't know, 79, yeah. right? I said, no, I really want to buy it. He goes, you're out of your mind, you're out of your mind. What are you smoking? He wouldn't let me buy stuff from Matt Groening, no. He had a he had an eye for uh, you know for for mistakes step, for stepping on on, <laughs> yeah. on talent as yeah. he did with with Chevy and uh, to yeah. Tony's story. Yeah. What was your favorite bit? My favorite what? Bit in the magazine. Well, uh, one of them was involving Maddie. A lot of people uh, denigrated Maddie. Maddie was unique in two ways. One. In 1970, he was buying first magazine rights. And I sold him the frog cartoon. Wait, the frog cartoon. What is the frog cartoon? Uh, the frog cartoon, it takes place in a restaurant with this couple looking down at this. It's a, there's a sign that says, try our frog's legs. And coming out of the kitchen is this little frog on, uh, on, a, on a little wagon and, and these little <laughs> irons. Now, what the hell I did, I don't know. 
The frog is going like this. Yeah, but, but the smartest thing I did was not to try to duplicate it again. I just went off somewhere else. Well, Maddie, uh, it, it, it appeared in December uh, 1970, and he paid me $100 for it. But I owned the cartoon, and that cartoon took off and made me a lot of money. The other thing I liked about Maddie, and he was unique about this, is you could get in there, you could go storming into his office and throttle him if you were pretty well near it. He was always available to me. For throttling. And, uh, and, but he was not above, of course we, we all attest to this, he was not above trying to pull a dirty deal. And he, came, he called me in, he called me in and asked me to sign this piece of paper, which was going to give him ownership of the frog. And I started for his throat. I really lost it, and I was going to strangle him. And off in the corner was Julian Weber, who was the president of National Lampoon. And he was also the lawyer. He was a very slight little man, and he was sitting in this butterfly chair that you could barely see him. And, and he turned around and he said, I told you Gross wasn't going to go for it. <laughs> <laughs> but as a result of this, by the way, I will probably do anything for Maddie as long as, um, as, 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 long as it, it, I don't get into too much trouble. And just fairly recently, he was trying to get me involved with a, a book deal with the current management of National Lampoon, which is, both of them are in jail now. And uh, I, I backed away from it, and of course, but Maddie had a good heart and he was trying to get me involved in Lampoon again. Okay. Douglas, when did you start? I have to go after the frog thing? Yes, you do. Yeah. Sorry. Um, when did you start reading the Lampoon? Well, I think my parents are here, so I can't give the real answer. But the, um, uh, I think I came to the Lampoon like a lot of people my age, which was really through Animal House. Right. Um, Animal House, you know, when it came out, I don't know if you guys saw the poster outside that Rick Meyerowitz did for this film, uh, which, which took a long time to convince him. It looks very much like the Animal House poster. There's all these detail on it. And I would go to this movie theater and the poster was there and just stare at it, you know, before going to another movie or after. And, and it was just looked like this amazing thing. So I went to Animal House with my dad and that led me to try and find the magazine after that. There were two places in the little town I lived that sold them, and they sort of weren't on the highest shelf, like the right. Hustler and Playboy. It was sort of on this other shelf you could get away with looking at it. And, uh, and then for me, there was the 10th anniversary edition came out, a hardback book. I think if I, from doing research for the film, they actually went on the Today Show to promote this, and right. David Susskind and all these places. And that, that really opened me up to it, and then started you know, getting the magazines from there. So one of the great things about seeing that, I, I had no interest in the subject at all, I have to say, until I saw the film. Um, you know, I remember the Lampoon, and all that, but I didn't quite appreciate its breadth, its, its throw weight. So maybe for some of the younger folks here, you might talk about 
all the little tributaries, or not so little tributaries, that the lampoon became. I mean, I think like, I think, like Animal House, for instance. I mean, I think what the 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 lampoon affects things in so many different ways. I mean, the the, the probably the most obvious is that. Animal House came from that, and that sort of created its own genre, for better or worse, some, some better, some maybe right. not as well, which I think leads us to Judd Apatow today, and even a movie like Trainwrecked, I think, owes something to Animal House. There's, of course, when Tony's talking about all the talent that came and did the off-Broadway shows like Lemming, and they had a radio show and a, another Broadway show, and those people really file into Saturday Night Live, which affects you know everything, sort of like a minor league for for big comedy. Well, but, I mean, we, we mentioned Belushi before and Chevy Chase and... Gilda Radner, Bill Murray, um, Ivan Reitman. I, I mean, it just go, it goes on. But what I think, the other part of it is for me is, is, which people I don't think talk about as much and we try and discuss in the movie, is that just also the look of the, the magazine. For me, when I think of comedy before National Lampoon, you think of like Carol Burnett on TV or Laugh-In and it's sort of, you know, there's a couple of props to make you think Lily Tomlin's in this phone booth or this phone bank or, you know, Carol Burnett's on this stage. But you look a little bit to the left or right, it, it's a stage. It would be like we had the set here and you could see it. After Lampoon, because everything is to such detail there, like in film you talk about filling the frame of the screen. Yeah. Every detail in the magazine, every, they did a New York phone book parody, the phone numbers are jokes. They did everything. And then you think of like the first season of Saturday Night Live and think of like the Greek diner or the samurai. And th that Greek diner looks like a Greek diner completely. The, you know, as modest as the newscast was then, it looked like what newscasts look like. And I think mm -hmm. the, that really is also part of where the, the lampoon sort of has taken us with comedy. Now, this thing you call a phone book, what is that? The phone book? Well, I mean, I, I know that, that Tony was saying that, uh, you know, the magazine, and, and I think he's right, isn't, you know, it doesn't, it's not about New York. It is this national magazine. But as a fan of the magazine, then of course making this film and looking at everything in condensed time, I do think you see a little bit of the history of New York in that time period through it in different ways. But I think for me, the most important way, sort of studying it now, or even when I first got that, that 10th anniversary edition, is it, it just looked like for the people working there, like New York City was like a studio backlot. It just looked, you could see all these things, whether they were supposed to be New York or not, where you got the impression that they just said, hey, I have an idea, let's go shoot in this like abandoned, uh, you know, I think there was an abandoned parking lot or something, the way New York always used to look, where there would just be like a building missing and it looked like people would throw their garbage there. There's a great little thing that's a parody, I think, of like a, a you know, like a fresh air kid saying, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, little Doug Kenny, who was the, one of the founders of it, writer, you know, little Doug Kenny will go hungry tonight. And he's just sitting at what looks like a corner of a Manhattan street that had been blown up, which is very New York. And I know that's probably like a bad description of New York, but it just felt like these guys could just go do anything. Like I have an idea, I'll go do it. We need to get a woman with oversized breasts. We'll go to 42nd street and just go find one. We'll, you know, there's a thing called dog I'm, fishing. I mean, I think, I think the paramount example of that was, uh, I don't know how many of you remember this, but, but one of the great publications that the Lampoon did in 1974 was called the High School Yearbook Parody, uh, which was, haha, uh, -ha, one laugh. Uh, and uh, the, the High School Yearbook Parody was actually uh, the high school yearbook. It was the 1964 high school yearbook of C.S.D. Kafalva High School in Dakron, Ohio. 
and that was it. But there's no such place as Stackron, okay? Uh, and, um, and, 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 and it was, it, it was a, an all-American, really, I mean, had every single crazy type, every single kind of situation that happens in, in high school, and which is portrayed in a high school yearbook. In order to shoot that, we had to shoot it in New York for budget reasons, and we had to have a lot of people who were willing to work for free. So we enlisted um, Columbia Prep on the Upper West Side. And Columbia Prep, which is, a, is, is actually K through 12, I think, but we enlisted their high, school, their high school segment, and they are the poor students of, of C. Estes Kefauver High School in Akron, Ohio. So, and, and that, I mean, that's a perfect example of how we used New York to do something that was actually worked brilliantly on a national scale. And, and the other thing is, and maybe it was for monetary reasons, but the, the people who work at the Lampoon are all over the Lampoon. In other words, it seemed like either in place of models or because they wanted to be maybe in a picture next to one of these 42nd Street dancers or, you know, they're, they're all over there. So as someone- Or if you want to parody John Lennon, for example. <laughs> yeah. Well, what about the 42nd Street dancers? What, 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 what is that exactly? Well, Danielle, who he's referring to, was the original Miss Photo Funnies, but uh, in later years we expanded and we used whoever we could get. Meaning? It didn't matter. You know, Women she, with slightly smaller breasts. Yeah, you know, she disappeared. Her, her boyfriend came up and threatened us once. It was, we weren't, you weren't dealing with, you know, a Madison Avenue crowd. Okay, so, all right. Uh, when I was hired, Doug was the first to, to speak. You know, this door opens up and all these Guys are sitting there. It's Doug Kenny, Henry Beard, Tony Hendra, Jerry Sussman, John Weidman, Brian, o Brian McConaughey, PJ O'Rourke, and Michael Gross brings me in. And he, uh, Doug looked at me and he goes, well, I have three questions. Can you get us drugs? Can you get us nude women? And do you have some place where we can go with the drugs and the nude women? <laughs> this is what he said to me. I swear to God. And I thought for a minute, I said, yes, yes. Yes. <laughs> and I look around, and Tony, and Tony was there, and he said, I have no further questions. Hired. <laughs> That's God's, that was my job interview. So. Okay. All right, so the audience has pitched us some questions. Um, do you have any ideas for pieces that you would want in the Lampoon now if it still existed? Yeah, but we're not going to do it for free. Yeah, I mean, you might steal them. <laughs> they pay good money. Yeah. Not everybody Listen, here is on a comp. I, I, you, that is true. The, 29 bucks? The Pope was free, and these people <laughs> paid 29 bucks for us? That's, that's amazing. All right, yeah. so can we give them one Lampoon article that deserves to be done now? Or, or well, would we do a Trump cover, and you'd open it, and the wig would come off? I mean, would we, <laughs> okay. would we do a, a you know, some sort of die cut where you open it up? And, yeah. There's fully bald Donald Trump. I mean, probably people want to see that. Yes. Oh, might sell, too. Well, I'm still doing uh, National Lampoon-type drawings, which are absolutely not going nowhere because there's nowhere it can go. <laughs> uh, I think I, we I'm, all do. I'm still doing it, though. And, and some of them are very, very funny. Uh, <laughs> they're sick as hell, but, uh, but they're also funny. It's, it's, they have to be funny in order for me to get away with it. So we need a little sick one. Can you, can you provide us with one of your... Well, I did, uh, in, at the National Lampoon, 
and I'm still doing a few of these things. But uh, at, at the National Lampoon, I did a spread on tampons, where I, I uh, liberally used red on this stuff. And they were funny, and I'm still doing stuff that would, that, that, that would use the red on a tampon. And I can't, uh, of course, I can't sell it. It goes into my, my files. I have right now well, over 30,000 <laughs> drawings in my files. And a lot of the stuff, I'm hoping that a magazine will resurrect, re resurrect itself and I, could use, and I would be there with it. I'm, I still ha I have them. Well, that was one of, in, the, in our interview, that was one of the things you said that was sort of in some ways heartbreaking, but, but also inspiring. Is I, you had said that what was great about the Lampoon is you, you had a place, someplace you'd send things for the New Yorker and someplace for the Lampoon. And uh, I said, well, what, and you said that you still got these ideas. And I said, what do you do? And you said, well, of course I still draw them. And I go, what do you do with them? And you said, I put them in that drawer right over there. But at least you still drew them. Who got in the most trouble? Excuse me? Who of the Lampoon... He's tried. not here today. Ted Mann. Ted Mann, and why? Without, uh, and you, how sorry, who, what, what was the Ted question? Mann. Who got in the most who, trouble? Who got in the most trouble? Yeah, I would say Ted Mann got in the most And who is Ted Mann, and what did he do to deserve that? Well, one, one of Ted, Ted's favorite things to do was to bump into a blind person on the street and say, watch where you're going, I'm blind. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Ted, uh... <laughs> Maddie, Maddie was having a meeting in his office when they were writing Animal House, and Ted was rather hungover, and he came in with no shoes, and his, he was all ripped apart, sweating and drunk and hadn't slept, and he was on the phone, and he picked up Maddie's phone, and he called the police, and he actually did. He called the police, and he said, y'all hold, and Maddie's looking, what's going on? And he, the police got on the phone. He says, there's a man who's stealing from my paycheck every week. He's right here. His name is Matty. Matty, M-A-T-T-Y Simmons. And he called, and Matty Simmons grabbed him, pulled him out of his office. He, he, he I, I, this is a, maybe not as extreme, but one of the, the better Ted Mann stories that, that we heard. And, and you should know, he went on to write like the Hatfield and McCoys oh, for the yeah. History Channel and a bunch of other things. Is that, I guess on Madison Avenue, there was an ad agency across the street. And you know how people in ad agencies, if they represent like a, a tide, they, they, they put the tide thing in their office. And so this guy across the street had all these products. And every time he put one up, Ted would go and buy one and put it in his window across. <laughs> I could think that he might be losing the business. <laughs> yeah, Ted, though, Ted had a, another side to him on two occasions. One of them, he supplied Bill Woodman, the cartoonist, with just reams of paper. The other thing he did was, to me, he sent a gigantic salmon down from Canada. And this thing arrives at the house, and it, it's, it's that big. And, uh, you know, he, uh, and we were very appreciative of it. And, and we lived on this thing for like two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ted also, Ted brought a 500 or a 200-gallon canister of laughing gas up to the office. Yes. Right? And he had two guys wheeling this thing in. I'm, I'm, the thing was 
five feet tall. I mean, this huge industrial, and balloons, and he handed out balloons to everyone in the office, yeah. and all day long, everyone was filling up balloons with nitrous oxide, and walking around the office, talking and squeaking. I have an idea for Mickey Mouse. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah, yeah. Matty had it removed. We were all Disney characters. Yeah, he also, by the, by the way, uh, there was a, a point where uh, everybody could decorate their own office. Yeah, he did it like and that. He had, he had this jungle with a hammock in this thing and, and, and monkey noises, et cetera. And, 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 you know. He did bad things. Um, I hope that answers your question. It, it did. Uh, and we see why he got him. Well, he also got other people to do bad things. He also got. Oh. Well, him and Tony got me to put a can of, we didn't have computers, so everything was done with rubber cement and cement thinner, and Tony knows exactly what I'm talking about. So Tony and Ted say, Kleiman, what would happen if Tony dropped a cigar ash in the rubber cement? <laughs> and I said, I don't know. And they're there, and the whole rubber cement went up, and Ted kicked the can over to put it out, and a wall of flame shot out. The entire editorial lounge <laughs> burst into flame. Uh, the so I floor didn't was, kick it over. I didn't kick it over. Uh, I think Ted kicked it over. The firemen came with axes. They chopped up our couch. Remember that? Yeah. So, so you didn't need the dynamite after all. Time. Yeah, well. <laughs> a little rubber cement. We hated the couch away. anyway. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts, if you were a, a member of the audience asked, what are your thoughts on the politically correct nature of comedy today? Hmm. I'm against it. Yeah. <laughs> that was a brave stand. <laughs> We couldn't Anybody do Anybody here for it? It's, we couldn't, we couldn't do anything that we did back then. We couldn't do it now. No. We, had, we had a cover of a big fist punching an Arab in the face. I don't know if you remember that. We could never do that. Well, I'm, still, I'm still doing it, but it's not going anywhere. Right. I, <laughs> Staying in the closet. It doesn't stop me. But, uh, you know, I try to sneak a couple of things uh, by the New Yorker, and uh, most of the time I, uh, I get them all back. I don't think we could even shoot the dog. Well, no. The dog. Do, can we? Yeah. Some of the folks here may not know about this cover. Well, it was January '73, I think, right? What, what was the? Ed Bluestone. Yes, but what was the what was the issue? Death. Title? Death. The death. The death cover was an incredibly cute mutt um, who was actually modeled on a dog that I owned called Freckles, and this very cute mutt. Um, had a 357 Magnum, I think it was, in his ear uh, with a big sort of mafiosi kind of looking hand clutching the, clutching the gun. And the caption read, uh, if you don't buy this magazine, we'll shoot this dog. <laughs> and the dog was looking over very worriedly at the gun. So it was, it was a great cover. It was probably the most successful cover we ever ran. So, so, somebody, somebody pointed out that... Uh, not to return to Donald Trump, but here we go. Somebody pointed out that Trump could actually kill a kitten on live television, and the story would be his poll numbers increased again. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to see that. <laughs> Tony and I recently did a, a piece uh, called Reheading, where we had uh, Muslims putting the heads back on to instead of beheading, it was reheading. And uh, we, Beautiful. Beautiful. we got a lot of flack for it. Um, yeah. Well, never found a home for from that. From yeah, who? Yeah. Who would be opposed to that? That seems right, like a exactly. good uh, The guy looks so happy, you know, he's got all these stitches around here. Now, yeah. And he's yeah. got his head back. Yeah, that reminds me. One of the things that I've done recently, which actually 
has seen somewhat the light of day because it, it's been part of a presentation of Bob Mankoff, the uh, cartoon editor of the New Yorker, and it shows these body parts all over the place, just strewn all over the place, and the head of this person, who obviously just blew himself up, is there, and the imam is looking down at him and saying, you don't get the virgins until we find your penis. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Just recently. You Wait, guys asked that, the question. That didn't yeah. get published? Huh? That should have gotten published. Uh, I'll publish that. You know, you'll publish that. I, it, yeah. I, I'm still trying to get it published. He uses it in a PowerPoint, basically, to show uh, what, uh, what ain't being published, basically. Uh -huh. that. <laughs> well, I don't think we can uh, surpass that. <laughs> and uh, I'd like to thank you guys for coming. And, by the way, you should go and see Drunk, Stone, Brilliant, and Dead, or we'll find a kitten and kill it. <laughs> you should also get the book. And the book that's... Yeah, don't forget the book. There's a, a book coming out, too. But the movie really, the the movie really is great. It's fantastic. It's been out for three, four years. It's a, it's a Rick, Meyerowitz's, Rick Meyerowitz has a book okay. called Drunk, Stone, Brilliant, Dead, which has all their work in it, and it's great. You yeah, you're in it. it. I'm in it. Tony's in it. And they're all in the movie, too, so go see the movie. Yeah. Thanks a lot, folks. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations on 92YOnDemand.org.